0: I don't think that it's an ideological one. I think it's about the goose that lays the golden eggs. That's, that's been the real glue of Western democracy in, in the post-war decade.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Today, I am calling in from Jerusalem, and I'm joined in Washington by Ed Luce, the Financial Times chief U.S. commentator and columnist. Ed is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, which will be released on May 4th. ER nerds, I hope you've been enjoying the traveling ER show. We'll be back to the regular schedule next week with our regular team, and we have got a lot to catch up on. Indeed, I hope we have a planet by the time I get back. Uh, If you have anything specific that you're dying for us to cover, you can email us at ER podcast at foreignpolicy.com. Maybe you'll even get a coveted mug out of it. Recently, from Jerusalem and our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Ed, your book is really, really important, but... Because we have an audience of ER nerds, we have to challenge the thesis a bit, and then we'll dive into it a little bit more in depth. The title captures the thesis, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, and clearly it talks about phenomena that are well known to everybody in uh, the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, And indeed, some of those Western liberal ideals are... Of significance elsewhere, such as Turkey, where there's recently been an election, even if it doesn't quite count as the West. But my question is this Are we reading too much into the rise of a bunch of backwards folks who are selling a kind of reactionary stew, as happens periodically? Or is there something truly substantive along the line of the retreat of a major philosophy behind
0: it? Well, those are good questions. I mean, the the word retreat uh, was very sort of carefully chosen. Um, My publisher first was trying to push me to use the word collapse, which I don't don't support and think is too Cassandra-ish. Retreat of Western Liberalism was a title I wanted and the title we have and it reflects the book. And the reason why I used retreat is because liberalism has suffered some very serious blows, not just in 2016, but it's really been building up for reasons and we can get into for, for 10 to 20 years now, arguably since the fall of the Berlin Wall. But retreat implies the possibility of regrouping and coming back. And so I don't want to, uh, you know, as I say, I don't want to be a Cassandra here. There is everything to play for. But are we, your sort of key question here, are we over-interpreting... As we in the media want to do, the latest events, namely Brexit and Trump. And my answer to that is no, I don't think we are. I mean, I was in, shortly after Trump was elected, I was in Austria for a few days um, last November, and uh, there was a, a presidential election coming up in which Norbert Hofer, the Freedom Party, stroke neo-Nazi almost, sort of postmodern neo-Nazi candidate was one of the two presidential contenders. He lost with 48% of the vote. And many people um, in our profession and and around Europe and the US declared the populist wave had broken. I think if a neo-Nazi gets 48% of the vote in Austria of all countries, that is not a populist wave breaking. And I would say the same without forecasting what's going to happen in the French presidential election. If Marine Le Pen loses by 40%, gets 40% of the vote in the second round and loses, which is a fairly likely scenario, if you look at the the second round polls, that is not a sudden victory and crowning moment of Western liberalism. It's a deeply alarming defeat. And, you know, as, as I said, my book sort of goes into the structural reasons why there's such Western middle-class disenchantment with democracy. But I don't think these are blips. I think these are quite deeply baked. And I fear I fear that we're going to see more of them in the years ahead. Well,
1: first of all, let me just roll back the, the tape there, because I just want to make sure I understood. You said if Marine Le Pen wins, that would be a defeat for West mm-hmm. Western liberalism. Right? I guess I misunderstood your language, because clearly right now it looks like she's going to lose.
0: Oh, no, I said if she loses with 40% of the vote which is what the polls... Oh, right. So, you know, with either Macron or possibly Fillon getting 60, but that, that's what the second round polls indicate would probably happen.
1: Yeah, but haven't, hasn't that always been there? I mean, say that they're the right wing in Austria, it's not exactly, you know, a hot flash, and Kurt Waldheim was elected in part because he was in the SS, not in spite of the fact that he was in the SS. And, you know, there have been Le Pens knocking around for some time. And while they're creeping up, I don't know that that represents a big turnabout. And Donald Trump, who will be seen as the poster child for all of this, is, I think, you know, an ideological cipher. I think you said define Western liberalism. He'd say whatever is not on Fox News. He doesn't know what liberalism is. He's a... He's a Trumpian, so you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to push back. I just think it's a good way to give you an opportunity to, to elucidate the argument of the book, I think.
0: Yeah, but and then, then they're good questions. So Marine Le Pen, let's just stick with that forty percent number. And of course, she could win. These polls are very, very, very um, uncertain. There's a lot of don't knows in the French electorate. But her her father lost in two thousand and two. As you remember, he made it first time in. Post war French history that a far right candidate had made it to the final round of the presidential election and. Against Chirac, Jacques Chirac, the sitting president, he lost with only eighteen percent of the vote, and the left, all the socialist voters, put famously put clothes pegs on their noses and voted for Chirac. So, if we're talking about a difference between losing with eighteen percent of the vote and losing with forty percent of the vote, that's that's a big change. Trump, we can, and I think suspect we will, we will shoot the breeze about what on earth Trump is up to and what he stands for, and you know what we can expect in the coming months. But Trump is by any measure, a deeply shocking result. I I, I agree with you. I don't think he really knows what Western liberalism is. He's finding out all sorts of things are more complicated than he thought, like North Korea and healthcare and taxes. And so we are sort of learning to paint by numbers along with Trump as he figures these things out. And that's a... But the fact that he was elected is a deep and profound shock. I mean, you know, the, arguably the only, the only real precedent in American history is Andrew Jackson in 1828. You've never had a populist, a right-wing or left-wing populist, actually make it to the White House. You've had, you know, George Wallace types and Father Coughlin types have significant sway on public opinion from the fringes, but they've never such figures have never come close to the White House. So what other, whatever Trump does... In the next uh, in the next three years, four years, um, his election is a deep shock. And it does signify. It does signify something, I think, very profound about the crisis um, our democracies find themselves in.
1: What? (laughs) You know, I mean, the Trump supporters are idiots, right? These people are not, like, voting because they, you know, have a view. I mean, you know, there's some self-interested rich guys who are voting because they have a view. And there's a few far-right nutcases who are white supremacists and so forth who are voting because they have a view. But most people seem like they're voting because they're kind of pissed off and sick of the system and looking for something else. But they're not sick of Republicans, per se, or Democrats, per se, you know, they're not sick of an ideology. They seem to just be sick of the system. Or is that is that an inaccurate
0: reason? Oh, I think they are sick of the system. I think they voted. I think they voted for disruption. Um, I think they voted for just, um, you know, screwing Washington over. Washington is despised. But I mean, that in itself is part of the crisis that's been brewing, which is that Washington has ceased to function as it has for most of America's history, whereby, Congress and whoever is in the White House manage in spite of you know their differences to get some stuff done. You know, Obama's presidency, many, many people who voted for Trump actually voted for Obama. So I don't, I don't think I don't think all Trump voters are deplorables. I think a lot, a lot of them are, but I don't think all are. But that that said, there is a complete and has been a complete sort of breakdown in regular functioning. Of, of America's federal government. And, you know, that is part of the backdrop to, to this deeply um, sort of frustrated vote for Trump, which is, you know, God, well, hell, any idiot will do. Uh, well,
1: well but so, so, oh, go on.
0: No, I, but sorry, please.
1: Well, no, what I was going to say was, I, I just wonder if the phenomenon we're seeing is less related to an ideological shift and more related to institutional crises that are taking place at the same time. And I think there's several institutional crises that are taking place. One of them is kind of a millennial uh, plus distrust of institutions. And it's not just government institutions, it's institutions like, you know, FIFA, uh, the Catholic Church, academic institutions, and so forth. Then on top of that, you've got multilateral institutions, whether they're the UN, the World Bank, and IMF, or or ill-conceived ones like those in the EU. And then on top of that, you've got a kind of breakdown because of a new kind of politics of polarization and negation of the opposition uh, that we see in the U.S. and to a lesser extent elsewhere. And that what we're really seeing is systems that are not keeping up with the times or the attitudes of people or able to function, and that that may indeed have fostered retreat of Western liberalism, but it may not actually be ideological.
0: Oh, I don't don't necessarily think any of this is ideological. Um, I mean, I agree with what your point about the Breakdown in institutions, in public trust for them, and there and there are there are a number of reasons um, why that is happening across the world. But the decline of earnings power of large swathes of Western electorates to varying degree or another. I mean, Canada and Australia have it slightly better than say Britain. The middle classes in Canada and Australia have it slightly better because there's been a commodities boom for much of, the last, much of the 21st century and they are big commodity exporting economies. But by and large, across the Western world, you have had um, a, a, a rise in the precariousness, and the term precariat is, I think, a good one, of, of work, of benefits, of, of middle-class economic security. And, you know, it, it did used to be the case, that governments would essentially insure people against risk; they would they would guarantee people's economic security. And across the Western world, that that role, again to one degree or another, government has been retreating from that role at just the moment when the economy is becoming way more affected by technology and way more integrated with a rising, uh, with a rising global economy. So there is a Western middle class crisis. I don't think. I don't think that it's an ideological one. I think it's about the goose that lays the golden eggs. That's, that's been the real glue of Western democracy in, in the post-war decades is that generally speaking, most people have been getting better off than, than their parents were and their children will be better off than them. And that sort of implicit bargain uh, has broken down in many people's minds. And I don't think that their reaction is necessarily ideological. I think it's, it's uh, screw you. The parties are pe- Pepsi and Coke. There's not much difference between them. Um, we keep trying different leaders who promise different things and you never deliver. Our lives are just as precarious, if not more, than they were. Um, and we're going to try whatever. There's a sort of element of desperation to Brexit. And to Trump and to the fact Marine Le Pen has a material chance of winning the, uh, the French presidency. Um, and I think we have to sort of pinch ourselves and ask, not 10 years ago, even five years ago, if, if, if you and I had been having this conversation uh, and we were told that Trump would be president and Marine Le Pen would stand a good chance of being French president and that Britain had cut itself off from Europe, a deal of all deals to be in part of the single market, but without belonging to the Euro, we would have said this is nonsensical, that this would require some gross utopia, a meteor to hit us from out of space for this kind of disruption to occur. And all I'm really arguing is it shouldn't surprise us. This is not a, a blip that we, that we call 2016 and say, oh, 2016 was just a weird year. We would, there was something in the water. This has been actually a long time in the oven. It's been baking. There are reasons, I think, for, for what's happening. And, and we ought to be wary of the continuation of these trends.
1: I, t- I totally agree with you. And in fact, it's not going to come as a big shock to you because we to talk about it in a little bit. The book that I've just finished essentially argues that there are times in history periodically when technological change and social change outstrip the ability of institutions and systems of belief to keep up with them, and that those are moments of great dislocation. And they happen actually multiple scales, um, but, you know, the big ones around the Reformation or around the Industrial Revolution, um, and that we're in a period right now like that, where technological change is actually changing the nature of work, the nature of how economies work. Uh, our understanding of economies, the nature of government, and and so forth. And, and as a result of those changes, you know, some of the old methods don't work. And, and you know, it, it used to be that when an economy grew, uh, uh, wages grew and jobs grew. And in the U.S. over the past uh, couple of decades, that hasn't been as true in the past. and And the question is whether that's a failure of government qua government or whether it's actually a failure of government to recognize and respond to bigger changes that are a result of of, of technological issues or or other natures.
0: Yeah, I do think that technology... You know, people try and make a distinction between globalisation and technology. Actually, they're the same thing. Um, you know, the, the integration of um, the Chinese economy with the American one is enabled by technology. It's enabled by modern shipping, modern um, data transfer, modern freight, um, the speed of modern freight and efficiency of modern freight. So they're, they're kind of one and the same, same thing. It's technology-enabled globalisation. The corporate world is is to some degree keeping up with it, but even they are sort of being, um, even they are kind of being trumped. Uh, and I know you write about chief executives and how hard it is to be a chief executive nowadays. Um, even they are being trumped by uh, the speed of events. We are in an era where it's extremely hard for governments to to be ahead of the curve. So what you get instead is politicians um, who, who pander to social media. They try and be ahead of the Twitter curve. Um, and that I think increases our contempt for them, because we know they're pandering, we know they're flailing, we know that they're um, they're not actually sort of steering giant super tankers with with clear long term destinations in mind. They're just reacting, and we don't yet know a better way of producing a politics that is intelligently responsive. To this environment, so you, I think you raise the right questions. Which, of course, asking the right question is is one of the key things. But I'm not filled with confidence that our politics um, is going to find the answer um, to this question: is how do we adapt? To, uh, how do we adapt to these changes before we do a great deal of damage to the liberal democracy that we live in?
1: Politicians are li- politics. Politicians are lagging indicators, and in fact, periodically, what you'll get is a wave of revanchist or, you know, just kind of broadly backwards politicians hoping to bring back yesterday and offering up yesterday. And and right now, that's what we've got, right? I mean, you know, another way to talk about the decline of liberalism is that liberalism is, is, is at least theoretically focused on progress and growth and moving ahead. And if you look at the, the, the principal actors who are responsible for the phenomenon that you're talking about, whether it's Putin or Le Pen or Farage or Trump or Erdogan, these are all people who are essentially selling the 20th century. They're essentially saying, I can make things like they used to be. They each have their own favored era, although Trump and Putin seem to be zeroed in on the 1980s, uh, although Putin may be more interested in the 50s. But, but they're, they're, they're sort of saying, we'll turn back the clock. Everything will be fine. We won't have to do this globalization, and and um, and you know, I and to me, it's so they're not actually throwing new ideas out there; they're they're trying to cling to old ones. I
0: agree. I agree with I agree with that entirely. Um, I mean, the last, if I mean, you talk about the great technological disruptions, and it takes a while for us to catch up. And of course, the you know, the last sort of really, really big disruptive one, occurred in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. And in that instance, you know, the move from farm to city, um, the move from peasanthood to working class, essentially, across most of of Europe, took place uh, over several decades, uh, well, arguably more than a century, in which most of the countries involved remained um, monarchical autocracies. Britain and America—you could argue were democr- semi-democracies without full franchise—but they they were able to navigate this over a period of decades. I think what we're seeing now is a far quicker, more telescoped disruption to the world of work and and our a much larger sort of sense of what we are as citizens um, occurring in a period of hyper-democracy, and I think. Uh, the window to get this right and the consequences of getting it wrong are much, much, um, well, the window is much narrower and the consequences are much larger. And so uh, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm not actually anticipating we're all going to, you know, turn into Erdogan, uh, 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 that we're all going to become Putinists. I don't think. You know, I don't think America is susceptible to that. I think you have enough antibodies in your system for the system to survive whatever Trump comes up with um, in the next few years. But I don't think the system is going to prevent its further degradation which of, of the institutions which precedes Trump. And, you know, my worry isn't so much what Trump will do, although I, I, I find him terrifying at moments, uh, my worry is what happens when the middle class realize that they've, they've been subjected to perhaps the largest bait and switch in America's electoral history, um, that he promised to, to, to be president for the forgotten American, and he is busy serving up whatever Wall Street um, or planning to serve up whatever Wall Street wants. Um, uh, my worry is what kind of backlash will... Come then. Well, maybe maybe it'll actually be you know uh, something positive, and that people will feel educated about populism and want to look for more serious politics again, or maybe they'll go for a real white nationalist who does know what he believes. I don't know, but I do think I do think we are at a hugely important crossroads where our system is is in the balance, and 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 I and I will you know, I don't want to retreat from that point because I think that that's. I, I think that that's um, I think that's objectively where we are.
1: Okay, well, that, and I and I think that's why your book is so important, and I'm so glad we're having a chance to talk to it. And why I encourage everybody to immediately go to Amazon and order the book and possibly multiple copies of it because <laughs> they make great graduation, Father's Day, Mother's Day presents, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, because whose whose mom doesn't really want a discussion of the retreat of Western liberalism? I know my my mother. Uh, would love that. Uh, in fact, I think I'll get it for my mother. But in any event, let me, let me just play lightning round here. We've got a couple of minutes to go on this. And and I, I'd like to throw out a name. And I'd like you in 60 seconds to explain why this name uh, supports your thesis or not. OK,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Vladimir Putin.
0: Vladimir Putin um, probably would support my thesis. In fact, he definitely would, that Western democracies are vulnerable. And I suspect he's been supporting my thesis long before I thought of it. Um, uh, He's uh, a little bit like a hostile minority shareholder in a company that keeps disrupting that company at shareholder meetings and gradually contributes to an undermining of confidence in the board of directors. And that's essentially what he's been doing in in terms of funding anti-establishment um, uh, groups in France, the Netherlands, um, Italy, and elsewhere. He's, uh, he, he sees the weakness of Western liberalism, and he applauds it. I don't. That's uh, where we differ. I, I worry about it. Uh,
1: well, okay. But right, in fact, he's been fanning the flames.
0: He's been fanning the flames, um, and you know he's been lending money to the likes of Marine Le Pen um, and uh, lending uh, cash—well, benefits in kind—to um, to the alt-right in the United States, as we know. I mean, this is this this is a, a series of investigations into Russia that are going to go on for some while, and I suspect they will lead to new investigations and then those new ones will lead to other new ones. When you investigate something, you always find new things to investigate.
1: I can just read, by the way, your book. I don't have a copy in front of me, um, but I could just imagine on the back of Blurb, you know, saying, this is exactly what I've been saying all along, Vladimir Putin.
0: <laughs> Except that we differ on the conclusion. I do think Western liberal democracy is worth defending. But yes, I think, um, I think the man has an instinct... As a very, very bright intelligence officer, you know, who was based in East Germany when it collapsed and when, it, and when reunification happened, he understands the weakness of the system and he takes a long term view and he is founding the flames, um, as you say.
1: Um, Erdogan.
0: Um, Erdogan, you know, has a, a love-hate thing with the West. Um, you know, initially, he was one of the strongest proponents of Turkey joining the European Union, all the economic but also civilizational benefits of Turkey being recognized as European, and the Europeans basically wouldn't have it. If Turkey had been a country of 10 million people, as opposed to 70 million people i suspect turkey would now be in the eu and we wouldn't have a strong man building 600 million dollar palaces in ankara and you know turning turning turkey into a plebiscitary um, strongman democracy but we've got this we've got this very thin skinned man as strong men tend to be who is taking Turkey off in a uh, what we might a few decades of co- ago have called an orientalist direction. I think that he would like to undermine, he would like to contribute to the delegitimization of a club that wouldn't have him as its member. And so he probably aligns with Putin um, on that score. Uh, liberal democracy is, is, is uh, weak, and let's make it weaker. Okay, we've
1: got a, just a couple of minutes here. I want to throw in a couple more.
0: Uh, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping has become. Uh, you were in Davos earlier this year. I know you. You were probably there when he gave his um, "Let's keep trade normal."
1: You know, we global elites. We have to go to Davos to get our batteries recharged and our passports
0: stamped. <laughs> Absolutely, and and to. Um, and to get the latest technological updates in PowerPoint presentations and all the very important skills we need in the modern world. Um, Absolutely. The uh, Xi Jinping has strangely become um, one of the uh, people who seeks to uphold, at least for the time being, the stability of the global economic order. It serves China very, very well, and uh, he doesn't want to see Trump disrupted. I suspect he might well have um, he might well have had quite an impact on Trump at the Mar a Lago meeting and earlier on telephone um, in telephone exchanges, because Trump, as I say, is learning to paint by numbers and people like Xi Jinping, and he's all he's always, you know, um, got got the opinion of the last person to whom he spoke <laughs> and um, Xi Jinping spoken to him. Um, so uh, Xi Jinping, I don't know. I don't think Xi Jinping wants disruption. I don't think Brexit was particularly helpful to Chinese investments in Britain. The, 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 those investments, which are large scale now, are predicated on access to the single market, and that's kind of been, uh, you know, kiboshed. So uh, I think Xi Jinping is a surprise—at least short, me, short to medium term—China is a surprise investor in in uh, global status quo.
1: Interesting. So Xi Jinping is the hero of your book, the champion of Western. <laughs> that's the kind of that's the kind of surprise twist that we expect expected. Uh, Let me go away from names. And here's the last one I've got. You know, it seems to me, if you look at the Brexit results, the Ankara results, the US results, cities are still fine with Western liberalism. It's the people outside of cities that have a problem with
0: it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And actually, very interestingly, the Turkish referendum on Sunday, Istanbul and Ankara voted against the increase in Erdogan's power. Moscow, votes against Putin. A majority in the last Russian presidential election voted against Putin. So cities, it's not just in the West. Cities globally are sort of uh, finding they have more in common, West and East, North and South to some degree, with each other um, than they do with their hinterlands. Some people have suggested rather extravagantly we should sort of have a global parliament of mayors. I think they're probably getting ahead of themselves because until cities have the power to raise standing armies and issue visas um, and print their own currencies. This is going to be more about people who live in cities having a feel-good sort of Davos connection with each other, than it is about um, how power is exercised, which is still through national governments. But it is the best expression there is, the boom of the city and the sagging of, of the, the sort of national hinterlands. It's the best expression there is of how elites are perceived basically across Western democracies to have more interest, with uh, more things in common with other elites, than they are with their own people.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. Xi Jinping is the hero. <laughs> Urbanization will preserve, you know, global ideals that we uh, cherish of, of, of liberalism. And uh, the rugged, howdy or outdoors people who live in the hinterlands are uh, are the are the enemy of, of uh, the elite. Wait a minute. That's I'm very confused. But uh, the uh, the thesis of this book. Um, and the argument that what we are seeing is, is more than just the rise of a bunch of reactionaries um, and, and, and that that is worthy of further investigation um, is why the book is essential. Um, and we strongly encourage you to go out and buy it. And if you don't believe us, then tune in to the next episode of the ER because we're going to keep talking about the book. So, Ed, thanks for this conversation and uh, and hang around because we'll keep talking and that'll be the next episode of the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkopf and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dor. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us.